Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks, where we are going to be exploring some of the world's great battlefields in the footsteps of the men who were there. I'm Matt McLaughlin, a battlefield historian from Australia, and I've got to say, walking the battlefields is the thing I love doing more than anything else. I'm very excited about this new podcast series, and joining me on this wonderful journey is a dear friend of mine and a wonderful battlefield historian. It's Peter Smith joining me from France. Pete, here we are. It's going to be a great show, isn't it? Hi, Matt. Yeah, been looking forward to this for months, so uh, great to, uh, to crack on with it, yeah. We're doing an interesting walk for our first one, Pete. It's the battlefield of Fromel, which is very famous for Australians, less well-known for British tr- for British people, although British troops did participate in this battle. Why don't you give us an overview? Why we, we, Fromel is 1916, the first major operation that the yep. Australians participated in on the Western Front. Give us a quick overview yep. of why this is an important battlefield and what went on here. Well, I think the most uh, important aspect for Australia is it's the first attack. It's the first attack, a divisional attack uh, of Australian troops newly arrived on the Western Front. So that's the, the most important thing, I suppose, and why we, why we should remember it. But of course, there is a secondary reason to remember it, and that is this is a total disaster. Uh, and there's nothing laudable about it whatsoever. So you can imagine how it felt in Australia. Australian troops arriving from Gallipoli, a perceived uh, disaster there, British organised disaster, as it would be perceived from an Australian perspective, and quite correctly so. So here we are on the Western Front. There's great hopes for Australian troops uh, carry, carrying on the, 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 their tradition, and uh, it's it's another disaster. So it, it's remembered really as being uh, the first action and a, an unsuccessful uh, and terrible action for Australia. It's an interesting one that's caused a little bit of consternation over the years is that it's actually grouped in with the Battle of the Somme, even though the area we're talking about, Fromel, is way up mm. in French Flanders, up near the Belgian border. And it it actually is not anywhere near the Somme, but there was a, a, a huge desire to stop the Germans sending troops south to support their comrades in the Battle of the Somme, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely correct. And it's interesting you should say that because over the years of, of, of walking the ground here, I often get asked, well, how close are we to, to the Somme? And we're not close at all, but it is, it's, it's, uh, very much linked to the Battle of the Somme. And in fact, if you want to be, you know, get down to nitty gritty, the Australian, uh, attack here, uh, from L will actually, uh, help or should, if it had worked, it's not going to work, help the Australians who are about to attack at Poissier because it's the same time within a few days. So there's very much a linkage to the the Somme, but they are very, very different uh, battlefields. 
I've always found Fromel a fascinating battlefield, Pete, because you can walk in the footsteps of the Aussies so closely. The battlefield hasn't changed uh, very much since the war. And it's, it's just a, it's a very moving, emotional place because of the scale of the disaster. I mean, we should say 5,533 Australians killed or wounded in basically 20 yeah. hours of fighting uh, in this battle. Yeah. And so it is a place where, you know, where you feel like you are walking with the ghosts of the dead in so many ways. Yeah, I think it's also it has another very interesting aspect, and that is it's all it's all very visual, uh, because the landscape is as flat as a pancake. It means that the, the minute you arrive, the minute you get off your, uh, out of your vehicle, as we head off walking across the landscape, the view is there. There's nothing impinging the view. There are very few trees. Uh, there are very few buildings. It is a view of the battlefield. So if you're if you're expecting to to see a battlefield and literally to be able to see it, then in this case you can. You can see right the way from where the Australians will attack from, right the way to where they're they're, they're trying to get to the German lines. It's it's a very visual experience. And that was the key to the battle that the Australians and the British on their right left their lines. They didn't have trenches here. They had breastworks, which were basically above ground trenches because the water table is so high that they had to build piles of sandbags and earth, which effectively became above ground trenches. So they left these breastworks. They crossed no man's land. They successfully got into the German lines, uh, but then the Germans counterattacked, forced them out. And that was why there were so many horrific casualties because the Australians having fought their way across no man's land then in the, in the last stages of the battle after having held the German lines for the best part of 24 hours then had to retreat back across no man's land. I mean, it must have been absolute hell on earth. Uh, uh, absolutely. And interestingly, there's an interesting aspect of those uh, those walls, which literally that, that's that's what they are, the breastworks, they are, they are walls. It meant that everybody knew where everybody was. Well, that makes it very difficult. It means that once the G- the Germans were aware the Australians were coming, the whistles blew at, uh, at uh, 6.15 and over the walls they went. Well, immediately the Germans knew where they were coming from because they can visually see it. Also, they knew where we were trying to get and we knew where we were trying to get. So it's a very visual battlefield for the men that are actually attacking. It's not a night attack. It's during the day. It's a bright, sunny sunny day. Um, and in fact, it won't get dark until around about 10.30. So we've got hours and hours of daylight left in a landscape that is as flat as a pancake and everybody able to see what, what is going on. Well, let's begin our walk in the footsteps of the Australians and British troops who fought at Fromel. In 1916. So we're going to start our walk at uh, Rue uh, Pétion Military Cemetery. Now, like all of the military cemeteries on the Western Front, uh, created eventually and designed by the Commonwealth War Graves, or Imperial War Graves as it was called. But to my mind, it's a very visual cemetery in very many, very many ways. More visual than others because of the straight touching lines of, of, of headstones. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, normally you'd expect a burial to be an individual burial, a gap between uh, that soldier's burial to the next one. Well, what, as you walk through the entrance into the cemetery, you can immediately see that the, 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 the lines of headstones are touching. And that indicates something. And what does it indicate? Well, it indicates that what these are are trench burials. In other words, there were no time for an individual burial. These were trenches that were dug, and then the, 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 sadly the, the remains, the, the bodies of the soldiers were laid side by side by side by side. And that is a, a straightforward indicator of very heavy casualties all at the same time. So it's a very visual entry into, in, into a cemetery. And they're all Australian. That's the other thing that immediately becomes obvious is these straight lines of touching headstones. It's the rising sun over and over and over again. I've always thought it's fascinating, Pete, that when you go to cemeteries like this one, that they tell a story just from the layout of the graves. It's a fascinating thing about the Commonwealth War grave cemeteries all over the world, but in particular these ones on the Western Front, because there's there's quite a a varied range of cemeteries. And Rue Petion is quite a striking cemetery for that reason, because as you say, you can tell instantly that these men were originally buried in, in long rows. And it's not a cemetery that most people would visit on the Fromel battlefield. No, it's not. And I think what I also found interesting uh, about it is that it is an immediate cemetery. So it's a battlefield cemetery. So these these long rows of graves were, were dug and these men were buried at the time, immediately after the uh, after the, their wounding. A lot of these guys are actually mortally wounded and brought back to this point because beside the cemetery is an aid post. 
uh, or should I perhaps say, beside the aid post is a cemetery. So these are guys that have been brought back wounded and, and dying of their wounds on their route uh, of evacuation. Or immediately after the battle, these are, are, because this is the nearest cemetery, organized cemetery to the battlefield, these are guys whose bodies could be recovered. Now that's something that we're going to talk about as the, as the story uh, uh, develops is that a lot of the men are not going to be recovered, but those that could be will be brought into this cemetery and, and buried here. So when was this cemetery started, Pete? This is a 1914 cemetery, in fact. It's almost one of those cemeteries that starts when we, uh, the, the lines solidify, we are facing the Germans a couple, a couple of hundred metres, uh, and that's just a very broad brush, a couple of hundred metres between the, 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 the trenches, and this is just behind our, our front lines. So only a couple of hundred metres actually behind our front lines. So it's a, it's a cemetery that's very close to, to the front line, um, and it's one where they, they put in an aid post, and our soldiers were killed from 1914 onwards, um, then they were going to be brought back and buried here. So it's not just, uh, by, by no means is this an Australian cemetery only. This has, has soldiers from all over the empire for the whole of the Great War. It continues to be used after the, the fighting at Fromel. Um, so it's, it, it's, a, it's a fairly fairly big cemetery, but, but it's those Australian graves with the touching headstones that are immediately obvious that something odd has happened here. Something has gone on. And tell us about any of the uh, notable uh, soldiers that are buried in the cemetery. I suppose one of the more un- unusual soldiers to to actually be buried here is he's actually not Australian. He's a New Zealander, and he is in fact um, a chaplain who was serving because uh, very few people are aware of this. But New Zealand um, uh, the division was close by, and they'd asked the Australian uh, division, Fifth Division, had asked for medical support, and they'd been given uh, the medical support, the stretcher bearers uh, from the New Zealand division. So, so there were a lot of New Zealand stretcher bearers operating on the battlefield, behind the battlefield, recovering men from the battlefield, and uh, a padre, Chaplain Spencer Maxted, was actually sadly uh, killed um, whilst uh, t- attending and bringing back in some of the the wounded, obviously trying to give last rites to some of them. And so he's buried uh, within the cemetery. So very unusual. We don't, you won't see that many padres on the on the battlefield, and certainly not not padres killed right in the front line. So he, he's buried there. Of course, I I, I tend to. Uh, there are the, uh, individual stories, a lot of men here, there'll be uh, men that were killed uh, who had fought at Gallipoli um, uh, because uh, a, a little side story is that the 5th Division had been raised uh, in Egypt, so it didn't fight on Gallipoli. But a lot of the Gallipoli battalions, to give this division an element of uh, people who'd seen combat, they split some of the battalions from the 1st uh, and 2nd Division so that there would be an element of, of Gallipoli men here. So there are Gallipoli men buried within this cemetery. So they'd survived the uh, Gallipoli and were killed on the, the very first uh, uh, attack on the Western Front. Well, it's a, a wonderful spot to begin our tour of Fromel because it paints a picture of that combined service of all of the the elements of the British Empire at the time, tells the story of Fromel, but also service in that area long before. We're going to leave the cemetery now, head out onto the road and turn left and walk down this road, which again is in the rear area. This In 1916, we would have been not safely behind the lines because we're very close to the front line, but we're not in the front line area yet. We're going to walk down this road and then on our on our right, after a couple of hundred metres, we're going to come to a, a small and quite a beautiful cemetery, which is Latrue Aid Post. Now, this, I have to say, is one of my favourite cemeteries on the Western Front. It's, it's a gorgeous, small, beautiful, weeping willows, a little moat around the cemetery. It's really a, a lovely place, isn't it? It's all, it's almost too tweet in 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 a way, um, with a little moat, very unusual. But of course, the water table is so high; it was probably put there partly as a design concept, but also partly to ensure that the the water table uh, uh, was not there where the where the bodies would have been buried. So a little moat around it, weeping willows. You're absolutely right. And again, it's another cemetery created right at the beginning, 1914, um, and uh, will be used uh, during uh, the Australian uh, attack on the, the the 19th and 20th of. July. July 1916. But not too many burials here that are Australian. I think people are quite surprised because this appears to be or has the feeling of being closer to the Australian frontline positions. It's just behind them. We have brigade headquarters tucked in alongside it. So you'd expect it to have a lot of Australians, but but they're not. There are not that many Australians. I think because it was too difficult, it would have been too dangerous to bury people here. It is very close to the frontline. We can see the frontline, the Australian frontline, and in fact, we can see beyond to the German frontline. 
So you wouldn't want to be burying one of the things that, that, that is fairly obvious, I suppose, is that you don't want to lose the living in burying the dead. So not that many Australians uh, in here. I'm just looking at my notes to see how many that there actually are. 350 burials, um, of which 52 are unknown Australians, and there are four named Australians. So there are only four Australians who we can say who they are buried within that uh, within the cemetery. But you're right, it's a very beautiful little cemetery. I always use it for uh, something else, and that is... Opposite, on our left-hand side, we have a farm. And that farm was actually the headquarters of uh, Brigadier, a very well-known uh, Brigadier, uh, Harold Edward Elliot, Pompey Elliot, um, who's a, a very well-known character within the story of Australia on the Western uh, the Western Front. And he had made his, his headquarters in the cellar of the farm opposite. The farm has been rebuilt, um, but presumably the cellars, maybe the same cellars beneath it, and he was there. Tell us a little bit more about uh, about Pompey Elliot because he is quite a uh, an important character in the story of uh, of the Australians on the Western Front. He is he's very much an important character in the story of this battle because he was one of the only brigadiers uh, remembering that there are three brigades in a division and each brigade is commanded by a brigadier. So there are six brigadiers here because the British division alongside also attacking the 61st division. So there are six brigadiers basically here or of the rank of brigadier or, the, or, or that level. Um, Pompey Elliot is one of the men who is very much against this attack taking place. He begins to realise that if this attack is designed to draw away the reserves from the Somme, German reserves, or at least hold German reserves here then it's not going to work. It doesn't look like it's going to work. The Germans are very much, it appears, the Germans are very much aware of what this attack is going to be, a diversionary attack. So if your enemy is aware that it's a diversionary attack, then it's not really a diversionary attack. It's not any point. There's no point in it going ahead. And Pompey Elliott was very much of the belief that this attack was going to squander lives. And he was absolutely right. And so uh, he tried uh, in his in his own way to stop the attack. Now, he's a very outspoken man, a very outspoken man, not a keen uh, fan of the British upper class and the, the, the nobby officer. So uh, he he's probably too outspoken. And I think effectively he was told just to, to to shut up and get on with it. And so he always blamed himself that he didn't make more of a fuss about this attack and try and stop it uh, because it's going to see the destruction of, of his brigade and, in fact, of the division. And it, it seriously affected him for the rest of his life. Uh, and sadly, in 1931, he will actually commit suicide. He had other issues, but partly because of his, his as we now know, post-traumatic stress. He committed suicide in, in, in 1931. So he's a well-known character and one that will come to a very, a very sad end. There's also uh, accounts that he was seen openly weeping as the remnants of his brigade marched back after the disastrous attack at Fromel. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I've seen some reports that suggest that was the case. But even if it's not true, it certainly could have been true. He, he felt very strongly about the welfare of his men. He was against the attack and he was devastated by the, the losses that his brigade incurred. Absolutely. And to me, it feels true. It feels true for the for the type of man, man that he was. Um, and certainly, I've, I've actually scribbled down the, the, the count. Good God, Bill. And he's talking to a chap called Captain Bill Trainer. What's happened to my brigade? Um, and that I can imagine the kind of thing he would, he, he would say. And he was seen to be openly weeping. So some stories, are, we definitely know that some stories are apocryphal. I'm not sure about this one. I think it, it feels right to me. Well, Leaving Latrue, we're going to turn right. We're going to cross the, the main road that, that cuts through the heart of the Fromel battlefield. We're going to take a little side trip here. Whenever I come to Fromel, this is always one of the places I really enjoy going. There's a, there's a farmer's track directly opposite the, the road that we're now on. We're going to take that track. We're going to walk past the farmhouse. We're only going to walk a couple of hundred metres. And, of course, the trenches are long gone. We're not going to get there and find the breastworks and the trenches that we would have seen in 1916. But if we walk to the end of this farm track, and especially at a time of the year, perhaps in winter, perhaps in the off-season when there's no crops in the field, this farm track leads us to the intersection between the Australian and the British lines on the Fromel battlefield. It leads us right to the front line, looking out across no man's land. So now this is our first view across the killing fields of Fromel, and I always love coming to this spot. Again, it's a little bit of a bonus visit that most people wouldn't go to. It's not signposted. It's not generally included on any sort of tour of Fromel, but I always like to take people down here because when we get to the end of this farm track, we are now standing on the British slash Australian lines 
we're looking out across no man's land and we're looking out across the area where some of the most severe casualties of the entire battle occurred. It's a superb view and it's well worth the walk if you uh, have the time. Directly in front of us, uh, we we have a, a little, well, it's a ditch, basically. I always describe it as a, as a ditch. On all the maps, it's it's the River Lays. Or lay. I've never been quite sure how you say it, um, but it's um, it's it's basically a, a ditch, a fairly a fairly deep ditch, and then beyond that we would have been able to see the German frontline positions, and beyond that we see the rising ground that takes us up onto the Orbers Ridge. Um, the Orbers Ridge, named because to the right again we can see the spire of the uh, of the village of Orbers, and to the left we can see the spire of the village of Fromel, and the Orbers Ridge runs between the two. So it's a superb place to come to start to get the the lie of the land to understand what is going on, and what becomes very very visual uh, immediately is this is as flat as a pancake. If you have a mental image of the First World War, which many of us do, and our mental image of the First World War is black and white and flat, well yes it's. It's not black and white. It's obviously it's in colour, but it is it is seriously flat. This is the flat part of the First World War. Um, later on in the series, we'll be doing walks uh, across the Somme battlefield, and again, people's visual, mental kind of imagery is that the Somme is flat. The Somme is most definitely not flat. It is rolling chalk, uh, uh, chalk uh, uh, lowlands. So it's it's a very rolling countryside. But this truly is flat. It's almost at uh, sea level, so the water table is about uh, two, three feet feet at the most below the the, the soil level. Um, so it's an extraordinary landscape and one that is is. Beautiful in many ways, but yet terrible. Terrible if you know that you're a soldier hiding behind a breastwork and at 6.15 when the whistles blow, you have to climb over those uh, that breastwork and in broad daylight attempt to get to the German frontline positions. As I said before, if, if you're fortunate to be here at a time when there's no crops in the field, we can walk across that field now. I absolutely do not do this if there's if there are crops in that field because... Thousands of Australians descend on Fromel every year now, and uh, and the farmer, although he's quite tolerant of, of of people coming to see the battlefield, doesn't appreciate his crops being trampled. So I only do this if the fields are clear. But if you are fortunate to be there at a time when the fields are clear, we're going to go on a walk literally in the footsteps of the Australians, which to me is one of the most moving parts of the battlefield. As we walk from the farm track directly south across the battlefield, we are walking in the footsteps of the men who took part in that attack and were mown down. We're walking towards a feature called the Sugarloaf, which we will talk about shortly. That was a German strong point in the line. But the part of the battlefield, the part of the story that always gets me most, Pete, is the story of the 58th Battalion. And the story of the 58th was that they were in, the, they were in support. They did not take part in the first attack across, across No Man's Land. They were in support. As the battle started to unravel, it was determined by the commanders that they should make a second attack. That the British troops should, that on the right of the Australians, should advance and make another attack and try to try to win the day. And to support them, half of the 58th Battalion was going to participate. So about 400 men were going to support them on the left. But eventually, after they realised the scale of the destruction, they decided it was it was a folly to try and send more men into this hell of fire. So they cancelled the attack. But the message never reached the 58th Battalion. So the 400 men of the 58th Battalion, after a slaughter had already occurred in front of them in no man's land, then left their trenches and advanced across no man's land. The Germans now knowing that there was no risk of losing the battle held their fire until the 58th were very close to the to their front line and then they just opened fire with a hail of machine gun fire and most of those 400 men were killed or wounded. It was one of the most futile, senseless and just frustratingly unnecessary attacks that I know of uh, during the First World War. Truly appalling. And of course, these men are actually part of the 15th Brigade, which is Pompey Elliott's brigade. So you can imagine why he would be so upset. Um, from his position where he was in his farmhouse, no doubt with his binoculars, he would be able to see this as well. They were absolutely devastated trying to cross the battlefield. There's another very, very sad aspect of all of this, is that most of those men were well into onto the battlefield, so they're in the middle of no man's land. So the 58th Battalion, those that were, were killed, the bodies could not be recovered. Um, and it's a very, very terrible story in many ways. Because these front lines, the German front line and the British front line, Australian at this point, but I'm general in a general sense, the British front line, it will not move. It will remain where it is to the end of the war. So from 1916, when this is taking place, to November the 11th, 1918, uh, uh, 
this had not really moved other than when the Germans fall back at the end of the war. So it, take, it, it, it is 1918 when at last we can clear the battlefield. And sadly, these guys had lain out, the men of the 58th particularly, in the middle of, middle of no man's land, trying to get to this sugar loaf, this heavily defended German position, right on the junction between the Australian division and the British uh, 61st Division, so Australian 5th Division, British 61st Division, so right in that junction, they were un- unable to get there and their bodies still lay there on the battlefield in 1918 and, and were recovered. In fact, Charles Bean, the official historian for Australia uh, during the Great War, he actually uh, came during that recovery to actually have a look at the battlefield because he wanted to know what had happened, what had happened to the 58th Battalion, what had happened to the 60th Battalion. These battalions annihilated by the guns firing from the Sugarloaf. And he came and he was there during the clearances as they recovered, sadly, the bones of these men still on the surface. It's an interesting aspect to the story, Charles Bean, because Bean... Was every, he landed at Gallipoli on the first day. He was the father of the Anzac legend in many ways. And he always wanted to position himself wherever the Australians were. And the fascinating thing about this attack is it wasn't supposed to be much of an attack. It was supposed to be a diversion. The Australians were going to occupy the German trenches, hold the German troops there. It, it wasn't supposed to be a particularly important element to the fighting. The main thrust of the fighting in 1916 in July was taking place down on the Somme. So that's where Charles Bean was. And he was down at Pozier with the other Australian divisions. And he got to know the Battle of Pozier very, very well during the course of that war. And some of his most famous works of his official history to discuss the Battle of Pozier. But Charles Bean himself said that he always regretted that he wasn't at Fromel that he, he didn't realise what was going to go on at Fromel and how important it would become. And that was the one action of the entire war that he felt he had missed and not covered particularly well. And he wasn't there with his Australian troops. So as soon as peace was declared, on the 11th of November 1918, within days of the end of the war, for the first time when it was safe to travel around the Western Front, where did Charles Bean go? He went to Fromel for the first time. And he went to the battlefield two years after the, after the battle had taken place. And I actually have a quote from him, walking the ground that we're walking now as we walk across no man's land. So this is in 1918. This is what Charles Bean found. We found the old no man's land simply full of our dead. In the narrow sector west of the Lays River and east of the Sugarloaf Salient, the skulls and bones and torn uniforms were lying about everywhere. I found a bit of Australian kit 50 yards from the corner of the salient and the bones of an Australian officer and several men within 100 yards of it. So he's talking about, and he took photos as well, of bones of men right up against the German line. So it just shows how... I don't think it shows that the Australians almost broke into the German lines. I think what it shows is that the Germans just held their fire until there was no chance of escape and then at very close range blasted away at the Australians. So just this is one of those places on the Western Front where where you walk, you feel like you are walking with ghosts. And every time I've done this walk from the farm track to the Sugarloaf, you always find bullets, you always find shrapnel balls. I've found small pieces of human bone on a number of occasions reflecting that the men lay out there for two and a half years until they could finally be be cleared after the war. It's a terribly moving and sombre experience. You usually can't do it. Often, usually when you go to Fromel, you won't be able to walk because the, the fields are full of crops. But if you are fortunate to be there when the fields are clear, absolutely do this walk to the Sugarloaf from that farm track because it's it's one of the most haunting aspects of the entire battlefield. Uh, a Kunskari Mormat and uh, uh, very lucky this year I, uh, with my young son we we literally walked from one side to the other because they'd had wheat in there and the wheat had been uh, harvested and so it was it was it was perfect for walking it was dry um, and extraordinary and you're absolutely right my young boy he's only five bent down picked up cartridges from off the uh, off off the off the field it's as easy as that he could he could see them we call it treasure and he picked up these little cartridges uh, and just ex- extraordinary there's another very sad aspect of this the, these guys that were were left on the battlefield to the end of the war these bones that were recovered i wondered why we couldn't identify these men because surely if those bodies had lain there since 1916 to 1918 they've not been disturbed per se by any any anybody or or, or other than than the random randomness randomness of the war um 
when they were recovered, surely they would have their personal belongings uh, around them and we'd be able to see who they are because these guys will be moved into the nearest cemetery, which is a cemetery called VC Corner, which we're going to head to in a minute. And they're buried within uh, VC Corner Cemetery. VC Corner Cemetery, 410 men buried within the confines of the walls and not a one uh, has an identity. It's the only all-Australian cemetery on the uh, uh, in, in France on the Western Front and um, all unknown. So how, how is that uh, possible? Well, I came across a very interesting account uh, from a New Zealand stretcher bearer who uh, has been tasked not to recover the bodies. He's been tasked to go out with uh, uh, patrols after the Australians ha have gone. And he's been warned that he's going to come across some absolutely appalling sights. And those appalling sights um, he, uh, of, of men all over the battlefield, all over this battlefield, he's been told he must, every time they come across a man, they must uh, check in their pockets, remove their pay book, remove any personal belongings, and remove their identity discs. It, a couple of interesting points there. One is that they're carrying their pay books, not normally done after this. It, it would be very unusual for a man to go into action with his pay book because it's going to tell you all about him. So they're normally handed in. But in this case, the Australians were carrying their pay books. Um, and of course, that's that's great. It means families have closure. It means they know for certain that their relative is dead. But what it also does, it denies a, a name to that uh, those human remains when they are eventually going to be recovered in 1918. So that's why they're they're all unknown. It's it's not because they'd lost or somehow we lost their identities, we lost their their private belongings, which were giving you clues. All of that was collected, gathered up, and brought um, brought back by the New Zealanders, clearing the, the the battlefields or removing things from the dead in in that period after the fighting. Um, also, interestingly, some of those belongings went home. And I had a very moving experience a few years ago where uh, an Australian chap had his uh, great uncle's uh, pay book and also some other private belongings and letters. And I said, how on earth have you got them? Because I knew he'd been killed uh, and, and his body was missing. And he said, because the New Zealander who collected these did not hand them in. He found my mother's uh, or his mother's, the soldier's uh, address, and he decided that it would be better that they were sent home to her than residing in some box somewhere, as he perceived it. And so he sent them all home. And so a very moving occasion, he unfolded this brown paper envelope and, and there were these letters and belongings from his great uncle from the battlefield uh, of Fromel. It was actually on the centenary of the, uh, of the fighting, so very moving. That's what I love about the experience of walking the ground is it brings these stories together and you do get a sense of it. You do you do start to connect with these men in a way you can't just by reading a book or even listening to a podcast like this one. Just before we leave the Sugarloaf, one thing I should say is people always say to me, Matt, I was lucky enough, I was at Fromel and there was no crops in the field so I walked there, but how can you tell when you get to the Sugarloaf? And what I always say to them is because of the German machine gun cartridges, you will find littering the ground. It just shows the huge amount of fire that came from here. And every time I've done this walk... The reason I know I'm on the Sugarloaf is all of a sudden I just start finding fired German machine gun cartridges from the 16th, uh, from the 19th of July, 1916. Just extraordinary that a century later we still see those remnants of the battle. And you mentioned it as well, walking with your boys and, and picking up cartridges from the field. Just extraordinary. I think it's fascinating that they're still there, isn't it? You would think that the ploughing, you know, 100 years of ploughing would have moved them, but it doesn't. It just kind of moves them left and then right, then left and then right as the, as the furrows are turned over. They, they just do not leave for, from where they were, where they were fighting. So it's, it's an extraordinary and very moving aspect of, of the battlefield. Another thing I'll just point out is what's also odd about the, the battlefield at Fromelli is we find bullets there as well. Uh, that's the actual, not the cartridge, the actual bullet, the thing that does the damage. And normally you don't find them on the battlefield because they whistle, you know, three miles away. And, and if they don't stop, if they don't sadly hit something, but even if they do, they very often carry on. Um, here they do not. They stay on the battlefield because of those walls of sandbags, because of the revetting, because because there are literally walls. It means that when you fired your ram, it hit one of the one of these walls and it stays on the battlefield. So another oddity of the battle at Fromel, you find the bullets on the battlefield. I found more artefacts. I, I mean, I don't generally collect artifacts when I'm on the battlefield and I certainly don't encourage anyone to do that today it's fantastic if you find something everyone's got a phone so you can take a photo of it you don't have to take it away from the battlefield but I found more artifacts on the Fromel battlefield than just about any battlefield I've walked it's quite extraordinary as you say because of those breastworks those above ground trenches but we're going to head back now across that field back to the farm track walk back along the farm track and then onto the road and we're going to turn right and we're going to walk down again across the battlefield and as we walk down this this road Eventually, we're going to cross the point where the Australian line crossed the 
the the road in this area. This was a road during the battlefield. The, the one thing we should remember about the Western Front, the, the handiest way to orient yourself if you're looking at an old map, an old trench map and a modern map or a Google Maps or something similar, is to look at the roads because the roads are very similar to how they were in in 1916. This one would have been cobblestones during the war. And actually walking along here once, the, the tarmac on the road was uh, was in need of repair and there was a very large pothole and I could see through the pothole the original cobblestones. So when they laid the uh, the asphalt, they uh, they just laid it straight over the cobblestones. So it was quite remarkable to see the cobbles that uh, the Australians had walked on in, in 1916 still beneath that road surface. But as we head along, we're going to come to that river that you mentioned, Pete, really the ditch, the river lays. And today it doesn't mean much at all. It's 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 quite deep. It's relatively wide, but it is a, a, effectively a drainage ditch. It's, it probably was a river once in medieval times, and the French have enhanced it in the intervening centuries, and it now it's, a, it's, it's really an irrigation or a drainage ditch. But I think the important thing to, to remember is this was a, a hell of an obstacle during the battle because it's it's too wide to jump over. And it's too deep to, to, to ford. You, you, the Australians have just had to sort of get through it as best they could. And these are the things that we should remember, that the small details, an obstacle like this in the middle of no man's land was going to be a huge problem. When you're there loaded, laden down with your pack under heavy fire trying to advance and all of a sudden you've got to cross this steep, steep-sided muddy ditch, it's, it's going to be a hell of an obstacle during the battle. And in addition, if you're wounded and just need to get out of that hell of fire you're going to crawl into whatever low ground you can find. And so that's exactly the role that the Lays River um, you know, featured in during the battle is that many wounded men tumbled into it to try and get out of that fire. And sadly, many of them died at the, at the bottom of that muddy ditch. It is extraordinary when you look at it now. It's so neat and tidy with with those edges cut perfectly, and of course that is not what it was like. It has, it has spread because of shell fire, so it was it was wider, perhaps a little less shallower than it is nowadays, but still a, a very difficult thing to cross. And remembering that these a lot of these guys are not just carrying a, a rifle and uh, and some ammunition. A lot of them are carrying trench uh, supplies, so perhaps some barbed wire and some pickets as well, because they think they're going to be taking the German lines and they're going to have to hold them and they're going to have to wire there so they're loaded down with uh, mills bombs and other equipment so it's uh, yeah, very difficult when you have to cross uh, a, literally a, a waterlogged area even if it's only lightly waterlogged but this this wasn't this this was certainly deep in some areas and uh, yes you're right Matt um, I'm sure some of them succumbed uh, 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 to, to the landscape rather than to their wounds because of the, uh, of the of the water that's there. It's about this point as well that the Australian front line crossed the road uh, right about where the 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 river lays crosses it today. So if you stand here, you're now standing on the on the Australian front line where that attack began. And definitely look at a map. Look at a map of the Battle of Fromel because it's an unusual layout. We we tend to, in our neat and ordered way, we tend to try and line up trenches with roads and other features. Uh, but it didn't work like that at Fromel. The the front lines actually went diagonally across the battlefield, and it's it's unusual and and it, and you can't quite work it out until you look at a map. So definitely do that. There's some good maps in the uh, in the Australian Memorial Park which we will get to a little bit later in the walk. But as we head down this road now, Pete, we're going to come to one of the most remarkable cemeteries, particularly for Australians on the Western Front. On our left, we're going to come to VC Corner Cemetery. And as we walk in, it's striking. It's a cemetery with no headstones. It's a cemetery with a wall at the back, which as we approach, we'll see features names of soldiers. But the the, the most dominant feature of the cemetery is two plots on either side of the, the centre line of the cemetery featuring a large white cross and rose bushes in a, in a square around these plots. Tell us about VC Corner, one of the most extraordinary cemeteries on the Western Front. It is. I think it, it has to be the most extraordinary. I, I, I can't think of another that, that it looks so strange when you come into it in the sense that because there are no headstones, because you have these two white uh, stone crosses flat uh, in the in the landscape uh, in, within the lawned area and then these, these roses around it. It leads a lot of people to their immediate gut reaction is, oh, it's, it's mass graves because you can see these kind of squares of, of roses, these crosses in the centre, and it looks like it's two mass graves. It's not at all. It's just a design concept. In fact, the soldiers that were buried here were buried in individual graves and their their lines run up and down and backwards and forwards across the cemetery as in any other cemetery. But because they're all uh, unknown, we don't know who they are, it was decided that what was the point of putting up a a headstone that said a soldier, uh, an unknown soldier, known unto God? Um, And I think quite rightly, it, it made sense not to do that, just to leave it devoid of anything other than the roses. 
Now, what's fascinating about the roses, and I have to say I haven't ever counted them, but there's supposed to be 410 red roses. So there's a red rose for every single soldier that's buried in there. Um, and so it's a, it's very moving and it's 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 very visual because of the wall at the back as well because of because of every single soldier in there is unknown we don't know who who he is it was decided that the back wall would carry the names of all of the Australian soldiers who are missing on the battlefield who we don't know where they're where they're buried so the four hundred and ten men that are buried within the, the the cemetery are actually very close to their names we just we can't link them together but the those four hundred and ten names will be on the wall very close to where, where they now lie so I think it's a very clever cemetery it's clever in it in its concept the walls around it I always use uh, as a as a prop when I'm in there especially with student groups. We can walk across to the wall on the right-hand side and it's, uh, I don't know, about four or five foot uh, high. And so all you have to do is squat down behind it and you immediately get the feel that you're behind the revetments, behind the breastwork. And um, it, it, it's very helpful to, to if you have a little whistle, which I very often carry with me on the battlefields, blow that whistle, imagine it's 6.15 and stand up and, and prepare to climb over that, uh, that, that wall. So I find it very helpful as well, looking across to the, the German lines. But if we walk to the to the back wall, we have the, the one of the standard things every single Commonwealth War Graves has: a cross of sacrifice, a beautiful, um, it's Jurassic limestone white cross, uh, and on it, emblazoned upon it, is the a sword, and it's known as a two-handed crusader sword. So beautiful uh, white; it looks white in the sunlight, and behind it, then this wall with all the names on. We should mention at this point as well that uh, this we're talking about the attack at Fromel. That's the ground we're covering here. And in a later podcast, we will talk about the other aspect that Fromel is most famous for, which is the recovery of the missing in the in the early 2000s up to 2010, when they found a mass grave uh, near Pheasant Wood. And we will tell that story about the recovery and the DNA testing and the identification of all these Australian bodies, which is just an extraordinary footnote for the Battle of Fromel. But for many well, for decades when I was coming here before that uh, that story and now as, as for decades after the war, that wall at the back of the cemetery was the only memorial to these missing men. And uh, it's about 1,299, I believe, was the number of original uh, men missing from the battle. So about 1,300 Australians missing from probably over 2,000 that were killed. So just an extraordinary proportion. Uh, but we'll tell the story of Pheasant Wood in a later podcast because uh, it's an absolutely fascinating footnote to the story. It, it is indeed. Um, and, uh, and of course, it has a ramification because of the, the, uh, the naming of those um, uh, or the, the finding of those bodies and the naming of some of them. It means that that, uh, that back wall with all of those uh, 1300 names on now is actually not strictly speaking correct. But uh, as, Matt, as Matt said, we'll talk about, about that later on. What I find is interesting when you look at that, the names are emblazoned upon this wall, that we see a, a, a Lieutenant a, a Colonel, a commander of one of the battalions. We also see men that, generally speaking, I would not expect to be involved in a full-scale attack, and that's the Quartermaster Sergeant. Now, you may have heard that rank before and thought, what on earth is a Quartermaster Sergeant? Well, there's a clue there in the Quartermaster. It's a man that looks after stores and supplies. And so here he is on, on the wall, and there are there are several of them on the wall to the missing, and there are a lot more who are actually uh, uh, killed outright and actually have graves. Uh, uh, these these guys on the missing, we do, they may have graves, but we don't know where they are, of course. But Quartermaster Sergeant, what, what, what does he do? Well, he's the man that runs the supplies. He's the man that organises the field cookers. He's the man that ensures that the men are fully ammunitioned up before they go into action. Um, I often describe them as uh, normally slightly overweight and slightly older than the rest of the men. Overweight because they are uh, uh, organising the food and they're making sure that they, they get a, a, a good percentage. Um, and older because they normally have experience. And that means that they may have served in the Boer War or they may have experience with uh, the British uh, regular forces before moving to Australia or in fact with the Australian uh, uh, military um, possibly as well. So these guys tend to be a little bit older. What you would not expect them to be doing is with a rifle and a bear it charging across no man's land uh, at, at the German front line, but here they are. So they did, and uh, and sadly they, they they died along with their men. So you have to start thinking: what would be the the, the reason for them to do that? What is the, the the input? Why do they want to to attack with their men? 
because there was certainly going to be a little bit of kudos connected with this. Remembering this is the, this charge, this this is the first time that Australian troops will go into combat on the Western Front. The 5th Division, untested, untrialled, they want to say we were with them on that first attack. We were with them when, when we gloriously took the German uh, uh, trenches at Fromel. Now, sadly, it isn't going to, that is not the story that we will, we will tell. But they didn't know that. But I suspect even if they did, they didn't want to be left out. They want to be with their men. Same with Lieutenant Colonels. They do not want to be sitting in their, uh, the, the rear areas watching their men going over into the attack. They want to be leading them from the front. And that's what many, many of them, uh, of them did. Interestingly, they were forbidden to do that. They are disobeying orders as they did on the 1st of July. The British attacking in that terrible attack on the 1st of July on the Somme. They also, most of the commanding officers of the battalions, the lieutenant colonels, went over with their men. Uh, and let's face it, if you've trained them, you've prepared them, you've brought them from the, 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 the deserts of Egypt or Gallipoli and their first action on the Western Front and you're told, no, you, you stay there in the, in, in the trench, in the, in the brigade headquarters and uh, they wouldn't and they didn't and they, they fell with their men leading from the front in many cases. In many, uh, in many senses, it was uh, it, it added to the confusion because so many of the commanders were killed in the front line when they should have been in the rear area. You know, hopefully, organising the uh, the retreat when the battle all fell apart. But that lieutenant colonel was Ignatius Norris, uh, and he was very well liked by his men from the fifty third battalion. He was the commander of the fifty third, and he was killed in the German lines trying to reach the support line after having taken the front line, and. He's well representative of what happened at Pheasant Wood because he was killed in the German lines. The Germans later buried the soldiers that they'd recovered in their own lines at this mass grave of Pheasant Wood. And Lieutenant Colonel Norris was one of the soldiers who in 2010 was identified thanks to DNA and removed from that mass grave. So even though his name still appears on the wall at VC Corner Cemetery, he now has a known grave in Pheasant Wood Cemetery. Just a couple of things I want to focus on before we leave, Pete. What will ha- firstly, what will happen to those names on the wall? I mean, assume when they eventually get around to it, they will remove those names from the wall at VC Corner. I don't think they're going to, Matt. I've actually had a conversation with uh, the, the Commonwealth uh, Wargrave stonemasons, and I think the thinking at the moment is that, just, that all the names have been recut in recent uh, in recent years. And I think the thinking at the moment is uh, they will not remove them because they do not remove them from other memorials to the missing. Uh, when when they're found, the only memorial that they did was the the very uh, striking and large uh, memorial on the Somme battlefield at Teepval, the Teepval memorial to the missing, um, in the nineteen uh, uh, well right up to the seventies. If you were found on the battlefield, identified your name came off the Teepval memorial, but they stopped that I think in 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 the seventies. It may be even earlier than that. But that was the only memorial that had the names taken off. If we go to uh, um, to Tynecott and the walls at the back of Tynecott or to the Menning Gate, these are both big memorials to the missing. Then uh, soldiers have been found on, uh, uh, there's a name on those walls and their names have been t- not been taken off. So I think they won't remove the names because it sets a precedence that is difficult to then follow through. If you start looking back, uh, do you start taking the names off, the, off all of the other memorials? So I don't think their names are going to be removed. The paperwork and documentation is changed. So the online documentation where you can look up a, a, a soldier to find out what happened to him, that will be corrected. Um, but effectively, they will be named in two locations. In fact, it's the same same for Australians commemorated at Villas Bretonneau on the memorial to the missing for the missing of, of France. If you are found uh, in the field just outside my house uh, where I live on the, on the Somme battlefield, um, and you are identified, then you will end up uh, getting a, a, your own grave, but your name will not be removed from the memorial to the missing at Villas Bretonneau. So I don't think their names are going to be removed. But it's uh, it's interesting. It's one of those nuances of the battlefield that has caused some consternation with some people, whether they, uh, they uh, will uh, remove those names or, or not. The other thing we should mention before we leave the cemetery is the name, VC Corner. It uh, it doesn't mean that every man in the cemetery has a VC or there's no VC winners recorded on the on the wall at the back. It was a name that came about uh, much earlier in the war, wasn't it? 
it, it was indeed. There is a, a, a little bit of debate about uh, how the name came about. So I, I actually tell two stories. One is that uh, in in nineteen fifteen, that a, a British soldier was awarded the Victoria Cross in the area. Uh, that isn't the story that I, be, I believe. I think it's a, a little bit more random than that. Uh, a little bit more interesting, perhaps, is that this was a very very dangerous spot. VC Corner was on a kink, an elbow on the road, patrolling from our front lines. When you got to that position, then you were well into no man's land, and you became fairly if you went very, very careful, visual, uh, you would be spotted by the Germans. So it, it, it's it's really, if you go down there, mate, you're liable to get the VC. In other words, it, it, what they're really meaning is that it's a dangerous place, a very dangerous spot on the battlefield. Um, so you have to be very careful uh, um, or you're going to get the VC, i.e. you may be killed. So I think that's more likely where it came from, that it's, uh, yeah, go down there, mate, you're, you're liable to earn the VC. Well, it's a beautiful cemetery. We're going to leave it now. Make sure you sign the visitor's book as well at the uh, at the front of the cemetery because that's uh, that's the only way of knowing that people have actually been there. We're going to leave VC Corner Cemetery and I always, as I walk out those gates and you're looking across the battlefield, it's 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 just striking that the, 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 it's a desolate place. Even today, even with crops in the field, it's it's not one of those corners of France that I think is beautiful. It's 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 a haunting place. And as we turn left... We're now walking again in the footsteps of the 53rd Battalion that uh, that Lieutenant Colonel Norris commanded in that battle. We're walking in his footsteps now, right in the heart of no man's land. That road was there during the war. As we walk along this road, we're walking in the footsteps of the 53rd Battalion with Australians on the left and right. Just imagine the scene. If you, if you were fortunate enough to still be standing as you walked along that road or ran along that road in, uh, in 1916, just men falling all around you, it would have been absolutely horrific. And as we continue along that road, up ahead on the left is the other major prominent feature of the battlefield, which is the Australian Memorial Park at Framil. Really quite a remarkable uh, memorial to the Australians that were there. It was only opened in the 1990s. There was, uh, there, was, there was no permanent memorial to the Australians, except for the cemetery on the Framil battlefield. And I think even though there was a flurry of activity in the 1990s and Australia built more memorials than just about anyone else, on the battlefields, I think it is appropriate that that uh, particularly ones like this one were built because that was the time when Australians really started visiting the battlefield in numbers, and there was no focal point for Australians to come and pay their respects on the Fromell battlefield. And today, it's a really wonderful memorial. So it's the Australian Memorial Park. There's the remains of several German pillboxes there, concrete pillboxes that uh, were not there during the fighting; they were built later in the war. Uh, but also the absolutely striking Cobbers statue. Pete, just you've been visiting this memorial park for a very long time. Give us your impressions of arriving at the Australian Memorial Park. Well, I think you're very, uh, what you say is absolutely spot on, Matt. It, um, it's okay having a cemetery, but you really need somewhere where Australian visitors and others could come and, and commemorate the Australian effort here because it's in absolutely the right location. And I think that's that's the bit that I always find fascinating. When they decided to put the Memorial Park where it is, it is actually the section of line that was captured by the 53rd Battalion and others who, who supported them. But it, it, it's that little bit because we held for a very short period a section of German trench. So I don't think that everything was lost. It wasn't. Australia did an unbelievable job in getting across no man's land and taking in that first rush, taking a section of German trench. And that section is where the Memorial Park is. So there's a very good reason to be there. We're, we're commemorating Australian success, no matter how fleeting and, and brief, this is where they got to. The depiction uh, of an Australian soldier carrying his wounded comrade is is very, very striking. And uh, it's one of my favourite memorials on the Western Front, uh, designed by Peter um, uh, Collette, who's the uh, the artist. And uh, I think it's, he did a superb uh, job. And it, it depicts literally a figure. So it's Sergeant Fraser who is carrying one of his wounded comrades off, off the battlefield. So it's not just, again, a random uh, picture of two uh, vision of two Australians. It tells its own little story. Um, so what is going on? Well, uh, Sergeant Fraser was one of those that disobeyed orders because there was a, a this battlefield is so flat and so dangerous. At the end of the physical fighting, there are men out in no man's land, wounded, dead, everywhere. Those that have got back have got back. But but the guys in the front line trench, they can hear them. They can hear, hear them calling for help. And how on earth do you get to, to somebody when there is no treating? That's the other thing to say. There's no type of 
parley with the Germans. There's no ceasefire. Nothing was officially organised. So it meant that men had to risk their lives and stand up and hope to go into no man's land and hope nobody would shoot them from the German side and try and find their, their, uh, their comrades. And Sergeant Fraser is one of those men that went out into no man's land multiple times and picked up men and brought them in. The name Cobbers, obviously we know what it means, you know, your friend. And it's believed that somebody shouted out to him on his third trip, don't forget me, Cobber. So that's how we get the name. Uh, did he go back and get him? Well, no, he didn't actually. He was absolutely bushed by then. And so he sent somebody else. But that's how we, that's how we get the name is don't forget me, Cobber. It's the recovery of men from, from this terrible battlefield who were allowed to do that without being uh, shot down by the Germans. So uh, we at least got some of the, the, the men in. And sadly, Sergeant Fraser was killed uh, the following year in, at the Second Battle of Bulukor, and he has no known grave. It's a, it's a little irony that after having done all this work to, to make sure men were retrieved from the battlefield and rescued, he himself was lost during that terrible fighting of Second Bulukor, and he has no known grave and is recorded uh, at Villas Bretno on the Australian National Memorial. I think it's interesting, Pete, when we talk about the phrasing there as well. When this story is told, we invariably today express that sentiment. We say, and a soldier called out, don't forget me, Cobber. And that's how we use it today. Don't forget, you know, we're not forgetting any of these men. But as you, as you put it there, that, that, that would have been an odd thing to, an odd way for the soldier to phrase it. He's much more likely to have said, don't forget me, Cobber. Uh, you know, carry me back as well as these other soldiers. So when you look at it in that context, it becomes a little bit more uh, focused on the individual um, but I like how it's evolved. So it's gone from don't forget me, Cobber, to don't forget me, Cobber. And I, I think a sentiment expressed for all of the Australians there. So it's a lovely spot. The, 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 the pillboxes here, so right on the German front line, these concrete pillboxes were not there during the war. They were there in, uh, they were put there in 1917. Um, and they're pretty badly smashed up. Again, not from the war. This is from farmers after the war trying to clear the fields so they could get on with life, so they could plough fields again. They found these obstructions all over the place. I mean, imagine what that was like. This is a brief insight into the post-war. We don't we don't often think about this, but farmers returned almost immediately that the war finished to to keep farming that land. And imagine the landscape that they found returning to Fromel in the early 1920s and finding trenches, the detritus of war, pillboxes everywhere, just the job, unexploded shells. That's the other thing we should mention. The job to try and resume some sort of normal life of a farmer on these fields would have been uh, absolutely challenging work. It, it's, it's interesting. Beyond uh, where, where we're standing now, looking up towards the ridge and towards Orbers and Fromel, that's where the Germans really went to town with, with their concrete, and there's an awful lot of concrete up there. Um, a lot of it was destroyed. There would be a lot more. And in fact, where we're standing now, we can see that some of these blockhouses are upside down and uh, and very badly damaged. Well, actually, some of these were brought in. They were brought in to enhance the Memorial Park. But perhaps the most interesting one is the one that's at the, right at the end of the park. If you walk past Sergeant Fraser on your right-hand side, down to the, to the end, and we can see one which gives you an insight into how they got rid of them. And what they did, effectively, the, that that detritus of war that was everywhere, everywhere the uh, ammunition, especially very, very dangerous and dangerous to the farmers coming back. So they gathered it together. And what did they do with it? Well, they thought we can do two things at once here. We can get rid of the da- dangerous ammunition and we can get rid of the blockhouses. So they filled them with the ammunition that they were finding all over the fields and then they detonated it. It didn't always work. We can see one of the other blockhouses on the site is upside down. It's been flipped upside down by that detonation. But the one right at the end, it looks like it's gone, like it's expanded internally. You can see it's gone, and it's uh, all the seams have cracked, and you can see some of the reinforcing uh, sticking out through it, and that's because of an internal detonation, which didn't do what it was intended to do. It it got rid of the ammunition, I suppose, so that that's one thing that's gone, but it didn't get rid of the blockhouse. It just spread it slightly, and, and, and that was it. So, uh, yes, it is very interesting. I think it's interesting, you know, being a farmer, what would it have been like to have uh, to have revisited or to come back to your farm and there's nothing there? And instead, what you've got is a flipping great big blockhouse where your farm used to be. And many people uh, incorporated those blockhouses into the farms. And so that's one of the other reasons why we don't see an awful lot of them is because they are built, the farms are built around them. They're still there. I'm a bit of a pillbox nerd and uh, I... From El, that, that area, Orbers Ridge, is one of the most fascinating areas to go and drive around. There's still some absolutely extraordinary pillboxes in all manner of shapes, sizes, purposes, uses, even one that still has the rough shape of a house because it was built and disguised as a house. And so the pillbox is still in the shape with the peaked roof of a, of a house 
uh, even though it's just made out of rough concrete. And you can see the the, the, the plan, the, the, the way the Germans disguised that house was to put a roof on it and walls and make it look like a, a damaged house. It's just an extraordinary region. I think we'll do in a, in a future episode of this podcast, Pete, we should definitely focus on the pillboxes on the Western Front because a little bit nerdy, but it does tell a very uh, a fascinating story about fighting during the First World War. You can follow the development. It's fascinating, isn't it? You can actually literally follow the development of the of the pillbox by by what's left. It's uh, very sad that it's still not protected. Uh, it's another question I get asked quite often as we uh, drive up onto the uh, to the ridge from or walk up to the ridge from where where I'm now. Very often I'm asked the question: Oh, isn't it fantastic that these are still here? Uh, yes, it is, but they're not protected. There is no protection on the First World War blockhouse at all, almost anywhere on the battlefield, a, a few a few sites excluded. Um, and so it means that the farmer, if he ever gets the money together and he gets a JCB and a jackhammer on the JCB and thinks, yep, I don't think I'll remove this, they still do go. So they are still disappearing. So it's it's very sad. So I tend to take photographs of them as well when I, when I find one that's uh, extraordinary in one way or another. This is actually the conclusion of our walk. We're going to end it here at the Australian Memorial Park and in a future episode we'll talk about other areas on the Fromell Battlefield and the clearance and the mass grave at Pheasant Wood. But just before we go, Pete, even though we're ending the tour here, there's a couple of little memorials just a little bit beyond the Australian Memorial Park and I think we should talk about them because I think once you've finished this walk, just go for a little bit of a stroll and check out a couple of very special memorials that are on the road just beyond the park. Tell us about those. Right. Well, the the first thing we can see as we look up from the park, we can see what uh, appears to be a, a, a crucifix. And uh, if we walk along the road, it's on our left hand side round around the corner. Uh, and sure enough, there we have a crucifix. And it's actually um, a family, a, a private family in, in the UK who knew that their son had been lost fighting here in 1915. And he's got no uh, known grave. And it was decided that it would be nice to buy the plot of land that's uh, very close to where he was last seen, and perhaps they're buying the land that he now lies beneath, and to place a memorial to commemorate him. It's one of the, the other aspects of the Western Front, and one that we don't very often either talk about or visit, really. Private memorials, private uh, memorials built all over the battlefield. You find them all over. They're normally kind of tucked away in, in little corners and things to grieving families who felt it was necessary to uh, uh, to buy a little little fragment of uh, of the landscape and try and preserve uh, uh, where, their, where their sons were lost. Uh, now, sadly, Matt, I can't remember what he was called off the top of my it's, head. It's uh, Paul Kennedy, Captain Paul Kennedy of the Rifle Brigade. That's the memorial to him. He was killed on the 9th of May, 1915, and he's remembered on the Plug Street Memorial in Belgium. Yeah, so uh, so yeah, I think that's a uh, that's a, a beautiful little memorial. And then if we carry on round the couple of bends heading towards Fromel, then we come across a, an even an even more subdued memorial. One that's very often, if you're on a coach and you're whistling past it or in a car, you wouldn't even notice. A little little memorial on the left hand side, and it's to a Sergeant Bramble of the RAF. So we're now moving forward in time, and this is from uh, 1941. And Sergeant Bramble is a Spitfire pilot uh, in the West Riding Squadron, and uh, he was killed on a lone flight in 1941. We're flying all over the, uh, the, the the old Western Front on lone hit and run attacks by Spitfires. They really weren't suited to the job because they've got very little armour, and his Spitfire was sadly was shot down in the area and crashed, and he was killed. And he's commemorated by the French. The French have have remembered him and what he was trying to do to uh, to ease their suffering under the under the German occupation and um, he, he's commemorated there. I, uh, an old lady in the village, the first time I, vi- I visited Fromel, told me that, uh, that she remembered that being there as a small child and that, um, that the local people say that he actually managed to get out of his crippled aircraft as it crashed. Um, he managed to bail out, but that his parachute failed to open, uh, and that was how he uh, met his unfortunate end. But again, fascinating that when we walk this ground to think only 25 years later, it was the, the the German soldiers were back again, and, and 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 another war was being fought on this ground. Every patch of the ground of France has been soaked with blood over the centuries, and and this is really no exception. Well, that ends our tour of Fromel. If if you've walked up to uh to the to memorial to Flight Sergeant Bramble, you now be very close to the village, and there's a couple of nice little cafes in the village, and it will also take us up to the area around Pheasant Wood, which will be the next chapter of our story from Fromel. So look out in the in the coming weeks and months. We'll have a follow-up podcast where we tell the story of Pheasant Wood and that absolutely extraordinary recovery of bodies from the battlefield. But, Pete, it's been wonderful. It's a, it's a, it's a haunting battlefield. It's, it's not a glorious battlefield in any way. It's a testament to suffering and despair. And I, I always feel like that when I'm on the battlefield, even on the most beautiful summer day. It's still a sad and a somber place. And it's just been a real pleasure to walk the ground with you today. 
It's it's been great, Matt. It's uh, and it is. I, I agree entirely. It's a uh, it's a very moving battlefield to to visit. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this first episode of Battle Walks. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. The more people that hear about this, the more the more good work we can do. So subscribe, leave a review for us, particularly if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews uh, really help people find find the podcast and give us a five-star rating if you're feeling generous. But tune in next week. We'll be coming out every week with these wonderful walks across the battlefield. So just thank you for joining us on Battle Walks, and we will talk to you again. Pete, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Great. Looking forward to it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.